The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. As Kevin said, my name is Alexis, and um, today I have the opportunity to share with you a little bit of what I've been doing in the last several months. Um, So, in September, I took off on a plane for leaving the country by myself for the first time in my life. And I knew that it was where God was calling me, but I had no idea what he had in store for the next five months. Um, I was on my way to Tijuana, Mexico, to do a discipleship training school with an organization called YWAM. YWAM stands for Youth with a Mission, and it is an international organization with the focus of equipping young people to know God and make him known wherever they go. My specific school had a focus on photography and how we can use that to tell people's stories and glorify God. So. Um, I'm going to start by saying that something that God has impressed on my heart over the last little while um, is that when I come to share about the time that I had um, to preach Jesus, not YWAM, because I can tell you about the amazing experience that I had at this school, and I can tell you about the incredible people that I met and um, the wonderful culture of Mexico and the beauty and brokenness of this beautiful country. But if I only tell you that, I would be missing the entire point of why I left and why I ever went there in the first place. So I'm going to focus on telling you what God did through all of that. And um, first, though, I'm going to give you a little bit more of a glimpse of what I was actually doing so you can um, get a bit more of an understanding of that and show a few pictures. So the first three months of my school were spent on the YWAM base. And during that time, we got to have um, classes together and learn about God and learn about missions, as well as just really grow together as a community and become a family with the classmates we had there. We we also had uh, lots of worship times together as a class and with the other staff and students on the base, and um, had time as well to practice our photography with each other and nature. The second part of our school, oh yeah, the second part of our school was the outreach part where we get to take everything that we've learned in the first half and put it into practice in various ways. And so we kicked off that part as an entire school getting to build two houses for families in need. After that, we split off into teams. This is my team here with the family we built a house for. Um, And we went to different parts of Mexico to do ministry. My team got to go to Mexico City, which you can see here, as well as Querétaro and Guanajuato. While we were there, we met a lot of incredible people and saw God work in many different ways through our ministry. We got to do ministry in people's homes and in churches and on the streets. And uh, yeah, and so through, after, sorry, after our outreach, we headed back to Tijuana as a whole school and finished up um, 
the, our time together with um, a week of debrief and then our graduation. So this is my whole school at the graduation. Um, through all of this time that I was there, God was teaching me more about himself and more about myself. He was teaching me what it meant to actually be a follower of God. One of the first, during the first week that I was there, one of our school leaders talked to us about the day that Jesus and also Peter walked on water in the Bible, and he said, a disciple is somebody who follows their teacher everywhere they go. In that story, Peter was the only disciple there. The rest were spectators. And he asked us, are you going to be a disciple or a spectator? And that uh, question challenged me a lot, and I knew that I wanted to be a disciple. Um, and so over the next several months, God was teaching me what that really meant. God was showing me that if I wanted to follow him, that meant actually handing over the keys to the car, not just letting him sit in the passenger seat and sometimes asking him for directions. And so God, um, through that, led me to let go of a lot of fears and control of my life that I had clung to for my entire life until that point. And uh, he led me to trust him in the hardest moments of our outreach when I felt completely overwhelmed. And in that, it was hard. But in that, I found a freedom that I had never experienced before. And I found a level of joy that I had never experienced before. Sorry, I sound like I'm going to cry. I'm getting really excited. <laughs> and um, in that, I got to see that no matter where God leads me, I don't have to be afraid of it because he's only leading me farther into his love. And so I got to see God work in such incredible ways. I got to learn um, that God wants to speak to me personally and that I can hear his voice and that I can do amazing things for him because it's not about my abilities but about what he can do through me. And so through that, I got to see um, God do so many miracles. He provided funds for so many people um, in our school who didn't have uh, enough to pay for their outreach. He planted seeds in so many people's hearts as we went around and did ministry, and so many people saw his love for the first time. We saw entire families give their life to Christ and be baptized, and we saw people get healed on the streets in front of our eyes. It was amazing. Our God is incredibly powerful and unstoppable and amazingly loving more than we could understand. So one more thing that God showed me during my time there was that he confirmed um, the calling that ha I had felt on my heart for my whole life, and that is to go into missions full-time um, and long-term in many different countries around the world. So I am currently praying about what the next step of that looks like, and I'm so excited to continue. And so if you would like um, to hear more about anything I shared about today or anything at all, if you would like to support me at all as I continue with this, or just chat in general, I would love to hear from you. And I will be here after the service, and as well, my email is on the screen. So thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.
Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for your openness with us. Thank you for sharing Jesus with us. There's something um, oh, beautiful. There's something beautiful about hearing you, my sister in Christ, sharing about Christ. Uh, that's who all of this is for. That's what life is for. And this morning we're going to be hearing a lot about the grace that we have through Christ. Uh, though our sin uh, abounds, grace abounds all the more. And as we do that, I invite us to not just acknowledge that in our minds as words, but just to remember together that this is our Savior. This is what he's done for us. And he, he is who we sing to and who we pray to. He is, he is our, our Lord and he is, he's with us. And so I just invite us to give our hearts to him. I invite you to stand too. Let's, let's, let's sing to him. Stephanie. This is our daughter Erin and my husband Ben. We're the Wiltshires. Uh, today's uh, scripture reading comes from Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. <laughs> But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Second passage comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a human being. But as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when the hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he was destroyed has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has been put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Thank you so much, Ben and Stephanie. Uh, it's always more creative and more fun when you're reading the scriptures with your kids. That's uh, really great and uh, some tough scripture to read there too. Amen. <clears throat> I am so glad to be able to share the word this morning with us. And um, last week, Steve Morris was sharing from Romans chapter 5, 1 to 11. And uh, he actually had a really good quote that he wanted to include in the message that he didn't get time for. So I told him I'm going to read it for him this morning because it's really a great introduction to the message this morning. It's from a book uh, by Nick Stumble called Safe, Creating a Culture of Grace in a Climate of Shame. And this is what he says. He writes this, When you think about the grace God gives you and me, it would have been enough for him to do far less than he did. Through faith, when we come to Christ, God could have come to us and said, because of your faith, when it comes to the end of your life, you know what? I'll take it easy on you. I'll only judge you for some of the wrong things you've done. I'll only make you pay a little bit. You'll, I'll, I'll go really light on you. That would have been enough. It would have been enough if God would have said, because of Christ, I'll forgive your sin and spare your life. But that's all. I take that deal, he writes, but God didn't stop there. He said, I'm going to forgive your sin. In fact, I'll forgive them all, past, present, and future. I'm going to put a huge stamp of grace on your soul called forgiven. But that's not all. Next, I'm going to wrap you in the righteousness of Christ so that when I see you, I don't actually see your righteousness. I see the righteousness of my son, Jesus. So I'll pronounce over you righteous, then I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit into your life. I'm literally going to come and live in you. Your body is going to be my temple, and everywhere you go, I will be with you. I'm going to give you peace that surpasses understanding. I'm going to give you joy that the world doesn't understand. I'm going to call you my child, and then I'm going to take you to be with me in eternity, and you're going to sit at my right hand with Jesus and reign with him. There will be endless celebration, no more tears or sorrow or fears, no more sickness or death. I'm giving you all of it. Amen. <laughs> what a great introduction to the message this morning. Thank you, Steve, for this uh, quote from this book. Indeed, last week we turned the page and we entered into the scripture of Romans 5 to 8, which is a new section in Paul's thinking as he unfolds to us his entire description of the gospel. In chapters 5 to 8, we're talking about the new life that God offers uh, Christians in Christ. And the, the actual idea of newness of life is found in chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul says that the intent of our salvation is that we might walk in newness of life. And uh, in chapters 1 to 4, you uh, will remember this graph perhaps if a few weeks ago I shared it. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul has been talking about how we are, are uh, before God needing a Savior. And he talks about justification, that we are being made righteous through what Jesus Christ did. And uh, we're freed from the penalty of sin. And that's all about our salvation past as Christians. 
And then starting in chapter 5, he begins to talk about sanctification, the big theological word that means to be made holy. And that is where God is actually in the process of freeing you from the power of sin. It's an increasing process. It doesn't take place all at once. It'll, it'll happen until you put your head down in the grave. That's what is God, God is doing. He's making you holy. Sanctification, and it's salvation present. I am being saved. And then one day, and at the end of Romans 8, Paul talks about this stage, and that is glorification, when we will be made perfect, even as Jesus Christ. And uh, that is freedom from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine that? Not having the world around you tempt you, the devil come at you, the sin inside you well up. No, presence of sin is gone. And that is the fact that one day I will be saved. The Bible talks about salvation in those three ways. And it's interesting, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, as though Paul is trying to make sure you know where you are and get your bearings in this big theological landscape that he's painting, he says in chapters 5, 1 and 2, he talks about past, present, and future salvation. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that's past, we have peace with God. He says that, that's, that's already been done. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's present salvation. Now we have peace with God, and, and we rejoice in this hope in which we now stand, or this grace that we now stand in that's been accessed by faith. And then he says, sorry, at the end he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's, that's the glorification. That's the future salvation. So Paul, in a way, has just sort of made us aware that, that this, these all three are at work. We, get, we have to know where we are in the midst of our Christian lives, but he's, he's, he's identifying that because he's about to go into three chapters worth of just talking about sanctification. Three chapters worth, and he wants us to not get lost on the way. Sanctification, <clears throat> I would like to suggest to you that sanctification is the suspension bridge, okay, of our lives. Have you ever been to the Capilano Suspension Bridge in Vancouver? Put up your hand if you've been there. Oh, good. Several of you. Well, if you haven't got a chance to go there and you'd like to stay closer to home because of COVID, you can go to Pinawa. And Pinawa has a suspension bridge as well, not quite as grandiose as the Capilano. Now, what is it about suspension bridges that you know? Well, first of all, you know that as you're walking across a suspension bridge, every step you take, you feel it. This thing is moving. And in fact, if somebody at the far end starts running towards you, you really feel it, all right? And then if a little bit of a gust of wind comes and blows, you really feel it, and it, it, it feels rather shaky. It's like, I don't know if I like this experience. The fact is, though, the engineers of these suspension bridges have so articulated the details, overbearingly so, like way beyond the specs needed, so that that the moorings and the security at both ends are so solid that you are actually very secure, unbreakably secured at both ends of the suspension bridge. And as long as those two ends hold fast, you've got nothing to fear. When you're walking across this present life of the suspension bridge of human living, it can feel shaky. 
God is in the midst of sanctifying you, making you holy. You've been born of God. You have something behind you that is moored in the cross of Jesus Christ. It has been marked, the event of you having died with Jesus Christ to sin and now been born of God. You have that behind you, and you have the promises of God ahead of you that are absolutely sure. We talked about the solid faith and the solid promises of the solid God a few weeks ago. So you have that incredible marker behind you, the mooring of your faith. You have that incredible promise ahead of you, which is also as sure as that which is behind you. And being secured on both ends, you are right now in the midst of this life through all the shakiness and the wind blowing of circumstance and others and how they treat you and the way that you walk it out and stumble sometimes. doesn't matter because the point is that you are secure in Christ. And you can walk it out secure. And that's really what Paul is talking about in chapters 5 to 8. Is that in this life, as you are being sanctified by the grace of God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, how is it that you can have the security of, of the Christian? Our past security anchored in the cross, our future security anchored in the promises of God, our present security anchored in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing which is to come. The result is that we walk it out with absolute confidence, that the bridge called human life, though it gets shaky, though other people start jumping around and messing with you, and you feel a little bit thrown off balance, the already and the not yet, these two places that you live between, you know what, you can walk it out securely. And uh, I want you to keep your bearings on that idea in the coming weeks as we go through chapters 5 to 8. Christian living can be really scary at times. Christian living can be shaky. Sometimes you can feel that the sin that you thought you've dealt with is dominating your life again. Sometimes you can feel that you're really not trusting God as you ought to. But God has said that what he began in you, he's going to complete. And so in the promise of the past and the marker of your faith in Jesus Christ at the cross and the promise of the future and the marker of the hope and glory that you have, you can walk it out today. The problem is that to get across this suspension bridge, you have to deal with your sin. Now you thought that Paul was done talking about sin in chapter 3. Well, he's going to talk about it for another few chapters, but now the way that Paul is talking about sin is in regards to the believer's relationship with sin. Not the pre-Christian, the unbeliever's relationship with sin, but now the believer's relationship with sin. Because God says that in order for you to get to the other side, you're going to have to cross the suspension bridge of my sanctifying grace that will refine you, that will continue to restore that broken image of Jesus that is going to be in you, that everything that doesn't look like Jesus, I'm going to take the hammer and the chisel and keep working at you. And, and, and you have to enter into that. You have to take one step of faith after another. It might feel shaky at times, but God is going to finish the work that he began in you. But you have no choice. You can't. You're not going to go back. You're going to carry on with Jesus. He's going to get you there. And so in the scripture that we're looking at, we're going to be talking more about sanctification, where sin abounded. 
grace abounded all the more. Verse 20 of chapter 5. And I'd like to address this by looking at four questions. And these is, this is rather ambitious this morning, but we're going to look at four questions that Paul addresses in chapter 5, 12 to 21. First of all, how are we related to Adam, the first man? It's a really important question to answer. Secondly, how are we related to sin because of Adam? Thirdly, how are we related to Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam? And then thirdly, or finally, how are we related to sin because of Jesus Christ, the second Adam? <clears throat> now, before we get to those questions, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you, if you had the opportunity to sit down with Jesus for an hour or two and ask him a question, what would be the top question that you would want to ask Jesus? Some of you may be watching this incredible YouTube series called The Chosen. If you haven't started it, I encourage you to look at it. And uh, there's a really cool scene where Nicodemus sits across from the table of Jesus at night, and he asks him lots of questions. What would be the questions that you would ask Jesus if you had? I would imagine that some of them would be very practical questions. Questions like, why did the loved one that I had so dear to my heart have to be leaving this earth so early? Questions like maybe, how is it that, that these two, two Bible verses actually can be reconciled together? They seem to contradict each other. Or, why does evil seem to go on in this world so unchecked as it seems? Some of the questions might be more theological in nature they might be things like, um, how is it that your divinity and your humanity mingled together when you walked the earth? I am fascinated by that question. There's actually three or four of these kinds of questions that I've just ruminated over for many years, and, and these are the ones I'd ask Jesus. That's one of them. A second one would be, God, you say you're one God, but you're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sorry, I don't get it. Okay. And then the third one, again, I don't get, but I hold, I hold doggedly to both sides of these two truths. God says, I am elect, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. And God says, whosoever will may come. And I have a responsibility. I, I don't get that. It's called in the Greek an antinomy, antinomy. It's against my logic. There's a lot of those kinds of well, I added a fourth one. To those three, I've added a fourth question that I will ask Jesus as soon as I get the chance that doesn't compute in this little puny brain, and it is this. How can I be held responsible for something that Adam did long time ago and I wasn't there? <laughs> Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered that? Why are we declared guilty before God for something that we... That that Adam, the first human, did a long time ago. Why, why are we declared guilty? I, I don't get it. Let me read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about that question. He says, We must not begin to question our relationship with the world's first man, Adam, because every time you put the question, I will make you ask the same question about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you say to me, is it fair that the sin of Adam should be imputed to me? I will reply by asking, is it fair that the righteousness of Christ should be imputed to you? If you say further, I cannot cannot understand that sort of thing, I will ask, can you understand the other? The result is that you will be left without a gospel, without a hope, and without a salvation. This is a high doctrine. It is beyond our understanding, but as I say, it is our business to take the scriptures as they are. End of quote. Amen. This is one of the challenges of the Christian life, I believe, is that God leads us into his scripture. God leads us into the the, uh, truth of God, the word of God, and and there are things that we bump up against, and most of it we kind of get, we understand, but then we bump up against something and we don't get it. We don't understand it. So what do we do then? Do we suspend our belief until our intellect catches up to understanding something like the Trinity? I had a woman speak to me one day, several years ago, and she said for her to believe in a literal Adam and Eve is to commit intellectual suicide. And I said to her, then, dear sister, you are putting your intellect above the Word of God. We don't need to understand everything that God says in order to say, okay, I'll believe that. It's a big mistake that can be made. When we opened our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we opened a great museum of theological truth, and we opened the big hallway called original sin. Have you ever heard that term, original sin? It's a doctrine that is often misconstrued and misunderstood. In original sin says that it is the idea that we have inherited a depraved and sinful nature that is guilty before God and subject to his wrath, and that this nature actually permeates all of our self. There's not one aspect of your being that is not influenced by sin. That is the doctrine of original sin. And so we see from this that sin is not like a cancer that can be removed by surgery. It is malignant. Neither is sin a cell that can be genetically eliminated over time. There's no sin gene that scientists will find and say, ha, finally we've got the perfect human. It is a nature that we are born with. Sin must be understood probably in two ways. We need to distinguish between sin and sins. It is universal and inescapable because it is sin, our nature, but it is also compulsive because it leads us to to do sins, plural, and we can't seem to get it right. As Paul will say in chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What's going on? It's It's this thing called sin at work within me that causes me to commit sins. And so it is both a sickness and it is a rebellion. The reformer John Knox said it this way, as helpless sinners, we needed deliverance. As responsible sinners, we needed forgiveness. All of human need falls into one of those two categories. God sees it all, that which we have become because we are sinned against, and that which we have become because we sin. And that is why the Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
St. Augustine, another incredible heavyweight theologian of church history, saw original sin as a battlefield. He wrote this. He said, nothing is so easy to denounce and so difficult to understand as original sin. It is the soul's heavy chain, original sin. A more recent theologian named Richard Niebuhr used to say that the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. It's empirically verifiable because we all screw up and show us to be sinners. And so, so to jump into this text with a rather long runway that we've gone on, let's get off the ground now. You need to know three things that Paul knew before you're going to understand what Paul had to say. There's three core beliefs that Paul had as he talked about original sin. The first one is that Adam was the first literal, physical, and historical man. Secondly, that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve because we are in their bloodline. And then thirdly, therefore, we have a relationship with Adam. Whether you like it or not, you have a relationship with Adam. You don't get to choose your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents all the way back to Adam and Eve. You didn't get to choose that. You have a relationship with Adam and Eve. So now let's look at the four questions. And the first one we're going to answer is, how are we related to Adam, the first man? Well, we're related, obviously, because we're descendants of Adam. A biblical way of saying that is we were in his loins. Kind of a bodily, bodily term, but we were in his loins. You could check Ancestry.com and see if you can verify that, but I don't think they're going to take you back that far. But if you check out your parentage back and forth, all the way to as far back as you can go, you'll find you, you arrive at Adam and Eve. And Paul, what Paul is doing here is that he is taking Old Testament history, fact, and he's building New Testament theology on it. That's why when people start to mess with Old Testament history, they might as well just throw out the New Testament too often because you're not going to have the same understanding. And so all authors of the Bible take Adam and Eve and believe them to be literal people historically. Adam is not a myth. He's not an analogy. He's not an illustration in this scripture. He was the first human, and as such, all humans are related to him, and in him, all humans sinned. The very name Adam in Hebrew means humanity, mankind. We were in him. We were in his loins. He was the fountainhead, and so he was our representative. But it's not purely a bloodline issue. We have several ancestors that we've never known, and they haven't affected us as much as Adam has. We carry Adam around with us in a way that we don't carry any great-grandparent because sin entered the human race in Adam, and that was passed on to us all the way to now. And so the nature that we have is an Adamic nature. The apple, indeed, never falls far from the tree. And so it leads to the next question, which is, how are we related to sin because of Adam? Let's take a look now at verse 12. And you'll need to follow, maybe if you have your Bible open, to, to follow with me each verse, starting in verse 12. First of all, he says that sin came into the world through this one man, Adam. So that's how it got here. Secondly, he says that through that sin, death came into the world. So now, 
God said, the day you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. Well, God kept his promise. That's happened. Sin came in through one man, Adam. Death came through sin. And then death, it says, spread to all people because all sinned. Now, that's just a fact. From the time of Adam until now, there's only been one man that has never sinned. It's Jesus. All sinned. And then all died. Verse 13 even before the law defined sin, because what was sin? Sin was nothing. What's sin? It's like I came to you and I made up a word and told you, hey, don't do this. Flickety-bock. I have just made that up on the spot. Flickety-bock. I hope it's not a word in some other language. If I told you, don't you ever do flippity-bock, well, it means nothing. Well, all of a sudden, the law of Moses comes and says, here's what sin is, Ten Commandments and way beyond. And now people understand. But guess what? They'd been sinning all along anyway. Cain killed his brother Abel, and so on. And so what Paul is teaching here is that Adam sinned against God by disobeying a direct command, don't eat of the tree that you know you're not supposed to eat from. But from the time of Adam until Moses, people kept on sinning. They just didn't understand it. It wasn't a defiant rejection until the, the law of Moses came, and then it became more of a defiance but the law of Moses defined sin, and what happened was that people kept on sinning anyway. Like Adam, we are, though we know the law of God and we have it written on our hearts, cannot keep God's law. So verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Once the law was defined, there's this consciousness about it that the reality of disobeying was heightened. In fact, Paul in chapter 7, verse 8, jumping ahead a little bit, Paul is going to say this, verse 8, before the law was given, I would not have known what it means to covet. But if the law had not said, do not covet, but then sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. I, I, here's Paul saying, I didn't know, what's covet? All of a sudden, don't covet. And then the sin grabs hold of me and makes me want to covet everything. And so Paul Paul says that our relationship with sin is dictated by our relationship with Adam. We are compelled by a nature and if we're honest we come to the conclusion that Paul did in chapter 7 verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we come to. We come to a conclusion when we stop running from God, running from a guilty conscience, and we, st we come to the conclusion, what is gonna, how, how can I be saved? And we, if, we, if we are honest, we come to see Jesus as the only rescue. Several years ago, Pat uh, was... Um, making Easter eggs with the kids. This is way back when the children were small, and, and she made some beautifully colored Easter eggs. And sometime after that, I remember coming home from the office in Thunder Bay, and I walked in the door, and the, the stench just about knocked me off my feet. So what happened was one of these eggs rolled off the table, and, and it fell on the floor, and the, the smell inside just filled the whole house. And at the time, I remember thinking that it, it's such an, a picture of, of inherent sin within us. And what we do is we, we try to paint it and dress it up and we hide it. That's what we do with our sin. Sin 
Sin is the, probably the, the most unpopular subject on planet Earth. I mean, nobody wants to admit it because as soon as you admit it, you know you're accountable to the God who created you. So instead, we dress up our humanity, we paint ourselves, we put pretty colors on the outside, we, we appear so nice and so loving and so upright. We're good people. But what God sees is the smell inside. And every so, every so often, we fall, and the sin oozes out, and somebody else gets to smell it too. And and the way that an unbeliever is prone to deal with sin is that way. is just hide it, paint it, cover it up, blame it, detract, you know, deflect it. That's not the way God leads us to deal with our sin, as we'll see in a moment. And so the solution, then, to sin is not in Adam. There's no way you're going to overcome your sin. There's no way you're going to cover up that smell. And so we lead to the third point, and that is how are we related to Jesus, the second Adam? Let's take a look at verse 14. Paul writes this. He says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now, what does this word tupos, type, mean? A type in Scripture is a foreshadowing of something that will come later, okay? A type is a foreshadowing of something that's going to come later, And so Paul is comparing Adam with Christ in this passage. And notice that Adam is the type. He's the foreshadowing of the substance which is to come in Jesus. It's not the reverse. Christ is not, though Christ was second, Christ is not the type of Adam. Adam is the type of Christ or the copy of Christ or the pattern of Christ. What is God saying? God is saying that through Adam the first man, God showed us in an imperfect and flawed way how he was going to redeem sinful humanity who would put their trust in him. How's he going to do it? What are the same between Adam and Christ? Through a representative head. That's how. Okay? So the way that Jesus and Adam are the same is that they are both representatives of a humanity. Adam is the representative of the old humanity. Jesus, the second Adam, is a representative of the new humanity. Adam and Christ are representatives of humanity. The failures of Adam were imputed to us, and so we inherited his nature. And similarly, the successes of Christ are also imputed to us, and we inherit his nature, his grace, Paul is keen to point out the superiority of Christ, that by this one act of obedience, many can be made righteous. Just as by one act of disobedience, many were made sinners, by one act of righteousness in Jesus, many, many can be made righteous. And this is found in verses 15 to 17. The gift is not like the trespass. He says that in verse 15. He says it in 16. And why? It's because Jesus Christ is so much greater, so far superior. We are related to Jesus in the same way that we are related to Adam. We were not there when Adam sinned by taking that forbidden fruit. Neither were we there when Christ hung on the cross or when he lived his perfect life for 33 years that we can see sort of a reflection of dramatically in the chosen we weren't there. Or were we? 
Just a few weeks ago, we sang it. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? See, Paul's point is you were there. Paul's point is you were in Adam. You were in his loins. You're part of his seed. His blood flows through your veins. And Paul's point is as well that in the same way, you were there at the cross of Christ. That's why next week, chapter 6, verse 3, he's going to say, did you not know, do you not know that all of us who were, have baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? His death. You were there. That's why Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a mystical, spiritual union. You have it with Adam, you have it with Jesus. If you only have it with Adam, you have nothing to look forward to. If you have it with Christ, you have heaven and glory to hope in. This is the gospel, the gospel of grace. The, the union that we have with Jesus. Friends, I want you to know this. The union that you have with Jesus is not metaphorical. It is not imaginary. It is not an illustration. It's real. You are in Jesus. Jesus is in you if you're born of God. That's real. And that's the only way, Paul says in Romans 5 to 8, he says that's the only way you are going to overcome sin. That's the only way of walking across the suspension bridge of sanctification. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory, getting to that other side. It's the only way. Hallelujah. So glad it doesn't depend on me. I am so glad he didn't save me and say, well, get walking. This is good news. I want to say something to you. And I love it because um, about three weeks ago when Alexis returned from Mexico, she phoned me up and asked a question that was similar to this. Remember that, Alexis? She, she talked to me about this. And so here, here's, here's something I'm going to say to you. Christ gives us far more than we ever lost in Adam. Okay? And, second half of that is, Jesus gives us far more than Adam ever had. Isn't that amazing? See, the point is, is that Jesus was not God's second plan. Jesus was always God's plan to redeem lost humanity. And Adam, when he walked, even before the fall, when he disobeyed God, Adam still didn't have what you and I have. Adam had not sinned. Okay, that's good. 
but he did not have the righteousness of a perfect and holy God imputed to us, to, to him like we do. And so Christ gives us far more than we ever lost in Adam, and he gives us far more than Adam ever had. So let's take a look at the last question then. Um, what is our relationship to sin because of Jesus? Paul's going to be talking about this for three chapters, so I'm just going to touch on it today. But he's going to be really getting into this because it's so important to him. Whereas in Adam we were made sinners, which led to our condemnation, verse 18 I'm talking about in chapter 5. In Adam, our relationship with sin was that we were made sinners and we were condemned unto death through sin. In verse 19, Paul says that in Christ, we're actually made righteous and we're given forgiveness and eternal life. If you go back to the Easter egg story that I shared earlier, when the stench of your present sin as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus comes out, what do you do with it? We're still capable of sin in our thinking, saying, doing, feeling. What do we do with it? Well, knowing that Christ has paid the price for our sin, knowing that we are forgiven of it, knowing that we have been made partakers of a new nature by the Holy Spirit, knowing that our sins will not be held against us when we stand on the judgment seat, all of this should enable us to look at our sin and be found free from it in some way. Freedom from the guilt of it, freedom from the shame of it, freedom from having to hide it in the shells of our eggs and, ha and having to uh, fake it. Freedom from having to deflect and blame somebody else. Man, it, when we understand the truth and it, it, in what Scripture is teaching us, then the stench of our sin, when it comes out, what do we do with it? Well, we own it. Yeah, that's my smell. Yeah, I, that's me, sorry. You know, we own it. We confess it. Why? Because you're free from it already. You've already got the promise of glory. And you know that you're walking across the suspension bridge because God wants you to live the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. So, so when the stench of your sin comes out on this sanctification bridge, um, you, you own it. You, you, you just deal with it. You confess it and you, you get forgiven and filled and you move on. Next step. And why is that possible? It's possible because where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Do you know that the ten times in chapter 5, ten times there's a word that Paul uses that is not even translatable because it's kind of the word superabounding. It's actually, it's actually a, a word that's used, you know, when Jesus uh, fed the 4,000 and then he fed the 5,000. Remember those stories? It's, it's the leftovers. <laughs> That's the same word. God's got all kinds of leftovers. You got your sin, you got your sin up to this high. Guess what? God's got all kinds of leftovers in grace. He can overcome your sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's the gospel of grace. You know, I think that Satan spends a lot of time trying to convince unbelievers, unbelievers, that they're good enough without Christ. And he spends a lot of time trying to convince believers that they're not good enough with Christ. Does that make sense? But that's what he does. And the gospel of grace comes to us and says, like the song we're about to sing, 
the gospel comes and says to us that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and as they come, I'm going to ask that if I could just pray with you that uh, God might uh, minister this message down deep into the crevices of your soul. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you to uh, take these truths, this incredible message that Paul has in Romans 5, and apply it where I need, I need it applied and apply it where all of those listening need it applied. So that we'll, we'll really get it. We'll really get it that, that our security as believers is not built in our performance of sins or not sinning. But Lord, it's all found in you, Jesus. Our faith is in you. And Lord, as we study chapters 5 to 8 in the coming weeks, I pray you'll, you'll just draw back the curtain and help us to understand more about this abundant grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord God, this morning we bask in the glorious truth of this grace that you have given us that we did not deserve, but that you gave us out of love, that we would be forever united with Christ, forever in Christ, with Christ forever in us, that truly when you look at us, you do not see the sin, the ugliness that we know has been there, but that in Christ you look at us and see your son Jesus. And that is marvelous to us. Thank you for this marvelous grace. Thank you for this life that you give us that we can come to know it. And I pray that we would let it overflow to others as well, that they would also experience this marvelous grace. Please, please allow us to be part of that. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. May you be blessed as we go from here with the rest of our week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.